Hey guys, this is Coach K, and you're listening to the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast, where we talk about you. This is about you, your path, and your mind. So I'm very excited today because we are going to be doing something new. This is actually the first episode of the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast with a guest. So I'm very excited to have our first guest here today, and not just any guest, we have an absolute rock star who I will admit I'm very excited to speak with. We haven't even had the conversation yet, but I'm already so excited to share it with all my listeners. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. Britt Frank is a therapist, trauma specialist, educator, and the author of the book, Science of Stuck. Through her work, Britt speaks from personal experience, as well as her education and research on how we can make sense of what is going on in our heads, how we can make sense of our messy thoughts and emotions so that we can heal and really move forward. Britt speaks and writes about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed, which, by the way, I'm very excited to dive into today. So hi, Britt. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Of course, we're very, very excited to have you. And yeah, like I just said, you're actually the first guest on this podcast. So very excited to change it up. And I'm sure my listeners are ready to hear from someone else (laughs) other than me for once. (laughs) So where are you in the world right now? So I'm from New York originally, and I tell people, and I live in Kansas on purpose because people, for some reason, seem baffled by this notion that I would choose to live in the Midwest intentionally, but I do, and I love it here. That's awesome. That's funny you say that because I actually have a lot of family members from Kansas. My dad grew up there, grandparents were there, and a lot of my family are huge uh, University of Kansas men's basketball fans. So I don't know if you're anywhere near Lawrence or more near uh, Kansas State, but yeah, we're huge uh, KU fans. So I went to grad school there. So yay. Yay, Jayhawks. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's get into it. I honestly want to learn more about you because this is the first time we're speaking, although I do follow along with you on social media and listen to you on other podcasts. But can you speak on what you do and what brought you into this kind of work? Yeah. So I tell people I have my shiny forward facing resume and then like my sorted dirty what's actually happening behind the scenes that led me to here. And I'm happy to share both. So I'm a trauma specialist and I went to Duke. So I love that you're Coach K. That just made me happy. I was like, oh, sweet. I'm talking to Coach K. Awesome. And I focus on the neuroscience of mental health, which should be a thing that everyone does, but it's a specialty. And a lot of people don't realize that you could be a therapist and know nothing about the brain. And I came to this work because I was a disastrous mess of a human for many, many years, addictions, dysfunctions, crazy relationships. I don't believe in crazy people. I don't think that's a thing, but I will classify the behaviors in my relationships as crazy. And through a lot of trial and error, I found some things that worked, got better, got worse, got better, went sideways. It was not linear, but eventually I got, you know, my feet underneath me and I started crawling and then walking and then running. And now I'm like, okay, everyone needs to know this stuff. So people don't have to spend as much time as I did trying things that don't work. Yeah. And well, thank you so much for the work that you do, because I do think it's so important. And I'm really honestly happy with how far society has come with, you know, mental health and putting an importance on it for a long time. That wasn't a thing, obviously. But yeah, so I just really appreciate the work that you're doing. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the work that you do with clients. And who are the type of people that you really work with on a, you know, day to day basis? 
So when I started, when I was a baby therapist like 10 years ago, I started as a play therapist. That was my very first thing I got trained in. And it's not because I love kids, even though I do now. And it's not because I just wanted to help people, which is great, but that's, I really did not understand how this humaning thing worked. And I had this sense that if I could understand how little kids interpret the world, that would answer a lot of my questions about myself and about why human adults seem to be little kids running around in grown people's bodies. And so I did play therapy. And after watching how little people interpret their world, you know, things as adults that we think are no big deal are huge big deals to little kids. And, you know, when you're reality is told, you know, when you're told as a little kid, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's no big deal. Get over it. Stop crying. Whatever. You don't feel what you feel. You get told that often enough. You learn not to trust yourself. And then you grow into an adult who is anxious all the time or has analysis paralysis and indecisiveness and freezes up at the idea of making decisions. And not that everything stems from childhood, because that's certainly not true. But this childhood thing was a big deal. And so I started there. Now I work primarily with adults. And my private practice has a lot of, you know, generally high functioning, high achieving people that are doing the things and they're getting things done. Nevertheless, they feel not good. And so I'm really big on it's not enough to just do well. We also want to be well, like motivation and productivity and, you know, grinding and hustling is great, but it's not just do the things. It's do the things and enjoy the things, because what's the point of doing things well if we're going to feel miserable? Yeah. And I do feel like that's such a tough balance, you know, like being someone who I am in my 30s and trying to start my own business while also working full time, what, you know, all that. And it's this daily struggle. And I'm sure a lot of your clients deal with this too. But this daily struggle of pushing myself to get what I want to get done and be creative and all these things, but then also taking care of myself and making sure my mind is in the right place and I'm getting enough sleep and exercising. And I know a lot of people in my community deal with that as well. You know, like, how do I strive to be who I want to be and do what I want to do, but then also take care of myself at the same time? I mean, it's a daily struggle for sure. For me too. I mean, really the line between I'm going to take care of my body and rest versus no, I want to grind it out. I want to do, you know, I'm a big proponent of push yourself and challenge yourself. And again, it's this duality of being content with exactly who you are, nevertheless, refuse to stay that way. And it's holding space for lots of things to be true at the same time. And I think a lot of people have this binary of, well, if I'm doing self-care, then I'm lazy. And, you know, it's this or it's that. And it's like, no, lots of things can be true. You can like yourself and give yourself lots of compassion and hold yourself accountable. You can strive and grow and push and build and rest and nurture and breathe and support. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that you could do both. And it's tricky. And no one really has figured out the perfect balance of everything for every person. And anyone who says that is probably selling something. But it is possible. It's just so personal for people. You know, like, where's my line? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out where my line is. I can give tools and information and generally an idea of the blueprint of how this human brain thing works. But where's the line is such a personal, individual, specific thing to figure out. Yeah. And you talk a lot about change, but I'm sure that that balance, whatever it is for each individual, 
is always going to change too. Like as our life changes, you know, we have kids or we're in school and then we're out of school or our primary job changes, you know, all those things. And so it may feel like one month or one year we have figured out the balance and then everything changes and we have to figure it all out again. And that's normal. And a lot of people come to me just flipping out, like, what's wrong with me? I'm anxious. I have an anxiety disorder. And I'm certainly not saying that mental health challenges are not real. I mean, I see a therapist, I take meds, I've had mental health stuff my whole life. However, if you're coming to me saying you have an anxiety disorder, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and you're homeschooling three kids, and you've never had to do that, and you're working a job that demands you come into the office, and you have five dogs, three chickens, and you live with your mother-in-law, I would venture to to say you probably have some environmental stressors and that's why you're not able to launch the business and do your side hustle and run a marathon and you know we have to make sure that the things that we want to do are accurate reflections of the reality of our environment. So if my goals are not supported by the reality of my life, doesn't mean I'm wrong for wanting them. It just means if they don't happen, that's not necessarily because I suck as a human. And so I'm really big on, you know, dream big, strive big, and that's great. But let's start with what's realistic, what makes sense, where can we get you to yes now? Because if you want those really big, big things, that's going to be built of little micro yeses over time. And no one wants to do the micro yeses because they're not sexy and no one's going to do an Instagram live that they put on their shoes and then got back into bed. But those little micro yeses are how we get to the big things. And I have kicked and screamed and fought that my whole process. And I've surrendered to the truth that every big win started with a micro yes forward. Yeah, I feel like at least for me, surrendering to our what is happening around us and really being mindful of what we have going on and where we are in our current state, I believe really helps with preventing things like burnout and stuff like that, too. Because, you know, if it's like, hey, in this moment right now, I am capable of doing X, Y and Z. But then other than that, I need to rest, you know, or something like that, then you are finding that balance versus saying, hey, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and A, B, and C and all these other things. And maybe that lasts for a couple of weeks, but then at some point, it's just not going to work, right? You know, like, for example, this time of year, a lot of people like to put together New Year's resolutions, which is great. I think there is some benefit of it. I think it's just a form of, you know, trying to build better habits and that sort of thing. But to make those New Year's resolutions without thinking about the environment that you're in, if it's really going to be realistic, how does this fit within my everything that I have going on? Is there anything that I need to change to actually be successful with it without going through that process? It's going to last 10 days and then fall off. And that makes sense. And everyone will come to me on January 19th when everyone's New Year's resolutions are toast and be like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so lazy? Why am I so unmotivated? And everything you said is exactly true. Plus, think about what we all were just doing for the last three months. The last three months of the year is holiday madness and it's family and expectations and unstructured time and togetherness. And so the energy that we need to keep resolutions has already been annihilated by the holiday season. So if it was up to me, we would use January to reflect on 
okay, what worked? What didn't work? Where did I crush it? Where could I use a little bit more development or more support? Reflect on the year and not just ask yourself, what do I want? But why don't I have what I want? You know, what are the systems that are needed? And then don't attempt to, and everyone gets mad at me. High achieving people get mad when I say this, but it's true. Make your New Year's resolutions in April because January, you're wiped out. Like, sorry, like if you want to put on your shoes and go running, you're going to burn out. Our nervous systems were not designed to stay in a steady state achieving orientation permanently. And so November and December, you've been in, if you're like most people, you know, in Western culture, you are all systems go, even if you don't have, like, I don't have a lot of holiday stress because I've curated my boundaries, but nevertheless, it's all around me. So I feel it too. And so then in January, now you want to do the big thing. And again, if you think of your nervous system, you already fried your nervous system November, December, which means you need January, February, not to sit on your butt and do nothing, but to do different things. That way by March, April, you're ready to hit go and those changes are sustainable. Yeah. Just getting that balance, right? Get it in in that moment. It's like, hey, my balance is I got to get my feet underneath me. And then, you know, and then we push forward and do all these other things. So yeah, I want to get a little bit into your book, The Science of Stuck. And can you talk a little bit about just like what compelled you to, to write that book? Is that your first book that you've written? Yes, my first book came out March of 22. So exciting. So well, I wrote a book because I've always wanted to write a book. And so that's been I will write a book has been on every vision board and every New Year's thing since I was little, so yay. I wrote that book because when I was early in my recovery, like mid-20s and just sort of spinning, I really wish there was one book that kind of cherry-picked all the good stuff from all the books so I wouldn't have a stack of books because, you know, if you're like most people, you probably have a stack of self-help books laying around that's collecting dust that you look at and you're like, I should really get to that one. But when you're overwhelmed and burnt out and anxious and stressed and depressed, you don't have the bandwidth to read them all. And so The Science of Stuck is what I think, you know, and again, in my very limited worldview coming from my own lens, but like what I think with lots of disclaimers is the best info on trauma. Here's the best info on anxiety, but just the bottom lines. And all of the exercises in the book I designed to be done in five minutes or less because I know that when I read a book, if the exercise is like, now take your time and get your gear and clear an hour, I'm going to be like, nope, next what? But everyone has five minutes. It's 300 seconds. Everyone has 300 seconds to do a thing. And so the Science of Stuck has 300 seconds long exercises to do. And so I wrote the book I wish I had had when I started and I'm really happy with it. It's my show and tell of all my favorite things. That's awesome. I know you probably weren't trying to do this, but you totally just sold me on it. So I mean, you're totally right. I mean, there's so many topics within mental health in the mindfulness world that, you know, I even want to cover. But again, like I was talking about before, with all the other things that's going on, how do we find the time? I started to get into a habit last year, actually, of spending 10 minutes as soon as I wake up every morning reading. And so I, I really started to get through some pages that way. But it feels hard other than that to really find the time to do so. So um, that's awesome that you were able to really compile it all into one space. And it was important to me because I get pissy when I'm told what to do. And whenever I read a book and the intro is like, here's how you need to read this. I'm like, 
close next. So I wrote the book that you can read it in any order. It doesn't build as you go. You can randomly open a page. Like if you're peeing, leave the book in the bathroom and then like open and read whatever page and there's a nugget there. So I wanted to make it as user friendly as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. You talked about before your kind of fascination with childhood psychology and I wanted to know if that stemmed at all from your experiences as a child or teenager and any, you know, traumas that you had. Yeah, you know, I had a really hard time, like, becoming an adult person. And so as a child, I was alone a lot. I was labeled, you know, too sensitive. And, you know, I was the weird one that always had her head in a book, and I didn't know how to do friends. And there was a lot of trauma and a lot of suboptimal stuff happening around me and to me. And so I always felt like, why don't I human like everyone else? Like, it felt like I got sent out of the factory missing some parts and missing some settings. And so, you you know, again, my like fascination with human psychology was not out of this desire to help, even though like I'm happy that that's just sort of a bonus of the work. But it was, I want to understand this because it's really hard. And I don't know why things are harder for, like things seem like they're harder for me than for some other people. And not that it's like, woe is me, everything is hard. But like there were certain things that were really tricky. And it's really helpful when you know a little bit about how the brain works. We're like, oh, oh, it makes sense that that would happen. And it makes sense that if X and Y happen, Z is going to happen next. Because I really hated feeling crazy. And again, I don't believe in the concept of crazy. Like that's just a word people use to label things they don't understand. Like everything makes sense in context if you know the context. And I don't always know the context, but it's like when my car breaks down, it's not like, oh, this car is crazy. It's like, no, like there's a mechanical issue and someone who knows cars is going to know what's wrong. You know, I might not always know why something's happening, but most symptoms will make sense up close if you have enough context. And I've worked in patient psychiatric with some of the more extreme stuff people think about. All that stuff makes sense when you read the file and you understand the person's story. So there's no such thing as crazy. With that said, I felt crazy and I was told I was crazy. And so I really wanted to put to rest this crazy thing. Like there's no such thing as a crazy person. There's bad behaviors. There's crazy making dynamics, but like there is no person on this planet who is quote crazy. It's not a thing. Do you ever to this day, and I'm just really curious about this, have to remind yourself of that? Like, you know, maybe things start to get out of aligned a little bit or not. And you know, it's like behaviors start to change a little bit. Do you still have to remind yourself of that? Or do you feel like you're in a place where not so much anymore? I love that question. I have to remind myself about that. And often, you know, the legend in my family is that, you know, when my father and his brother were little, the men in white coats, and this would have been in like the 60s, the men in white coats came and whisked my grandmother away screaming for electroshock therapy in the hospital. And there's severe mental illness stuff on both sides of my family. And so this like, oh, my God, I have crazy genes. I have crazy genes. And it's like, yes, our genetics can predispose us to things. But I do remind myself often at frequent intervals and gently, crazy is not a thing. Yes, you've got some genetic predispositions, which just means you have to do a little bit of extra stuff in this area. Like, yes, take your meds today. Don't go off of them. But that doesn't mean that you're going to go crazy. And that doesn't mean that you are crazy. And I do have to remind myself. And my therapist reminds me of that often, too, when I forget to. It's easy to dish it out. But, you know, doing my own work, I forget everything I know as a therapist. So I need to be told what I know often. (laughs) 
I forgot to say this at the very beginning, by the way, and this isn't part of the podcast, but this is my first interview for the Making Changes Breaking Paris podcast. And I know I said that at the beginning, but there was definitely some nerves coming into this. So bear with me here, but I appreciate you and I appreciate you being here. On some of the past podcast episodes that I've heard you be on, I've heard you talk about some of your past traumas and experiences like you've referenced a little bit today. And I'm curious if when you do so, if you find that challenging at all? Like, do you feel like every time you bring up these past experiences that you're kind of like reliving those traumas or afterward almost feel exhausted because you've brought them up again? Or do you feel like you've kind of gotten to a point where you're past that and you feel okay talking about it? It's such a good question. And the answer is, I think Brene Brown talks about sharing from scarred over stuff, not from actively bleeding, like share from your wounds or share from your scars, not open wounds or something like that. And I really like that because the things that I share about on podcasts and when I talk about my work are not things that I am actively dealing with in real time right now. So like, you know, when I was going through my eating disorder, I wasn't on a podcast talking about, you know, binging and not eating and doing all of those things. You know, when I was recovering from smoking meth, I wasn't on podcasts like fantasizing about smoking meth. So it's not that I'm over it or past it. It's just that the things that I tend to share about are not things that today are active struggles for me. I save that for my therapist. <laughs> That's good. That definitely makes sense. And, and with some of those past experiences, experiences. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about was there a moment when things started to really turn around for you and you realized you like needed some help with this or you realized you wanted to make a big change in your life or you really wanted to start healing from what happened? Like, I guess I'm asking, like, was there a pivotal moment or was this all a gradual thing? I wish I had the pivotal moment because it's such a cool story when people are like, and then I never drank again, or like I had this dream and this insight and then the thing never had, or this was my turning point. I don't have that story. And, you know, it's messy. My story is, you know, I've always known I was a little off and I went through spurts of maybe I'll work on this and then no, I'm not working on this. And then maybe I'll be recovery adjacent and not really be in recovery, but sort of learn about it. So at least I understood why I was doing the things. And it was a lot of circling around and spiraling up and spiraling down and back and forth. There was no like, here's the moment that I hit rock bottom and then I climbed out. It was like, I'm gonna crawl and then I'm going to face plant and then I'm going to roll around in the dirt and then I'm going to fly above the mountains and then I'm going to crash and then I'm going to pick up my backpack and walk. So there really wasn't a pivotal moment. It was, you know, moments of progress interspersed with moments of, oh, wow, I could die while I'm doing this interspersed with, wow, I need help interspersed with, wow, I, there's nothing that's going to fix this. I'm doomed forever to be this way. And so no pivotal moment. It was like, I mean, I had some pivotal, like key indicators, like when I was in a relationship that got violence, you know, after it got, you know, everyone says, if someone ever hit me, I'd be out of there and like love to, you know, have that be a thing. It's not a thing. I used to think that too. It's like, oh, I would never take that. Well, there's a reason people get in violent relationships and stay in them. And it's not because they're stupid and it's not because they're dumb. It's really hard. You know, if it was easy to leave bad relationships, everyone would. And so having lived that from the inside, I can tell you, yeah, it's not as simple as, you know, if they hit me, I'd leave. It's like, 
talk to anyone who's ever been in that. And we all probably thought the same thing too. And so once that relationship got, you know, became a pattern and now it's like, okay, this is happening to me in my relationships and it's escalating and getting worse. I should probably figure this out because this doesn't end with me living. And so it wasn't like a moment. It was sort of like a, this pattern has flared up to a point where I can't ignore it or deny it. So I should probably deal with it. Yeah, there's no avoiding it anymore. Like this is something I have to deal with in order to to move on at all, move forward at all. At all. I want to go back to what you were saying before about how you tend to not be on a podcast or sharing publicly if that was something that you were dealing with currently, that would be something for your therapist. And I'm curious, I guess your specific reason for this, and the reason I bring this up is because I have seen you know, for example, I don't know if you listen to the We Can Do Hard Things podcast by Glennon Doyle at all. And, you know, she's not a therapist, licensed therapist, although she not although, but, you know, she talks about very hard things on her podcast, a lot of personal things as well, you know, thinking that she was bulimic for a lot of years and now recently got a diagnosis of anorexia and how that's something she's very much dealing with right now and something she's sharing publicly. And so I would just kind of love to hear your take on that. I think if that works for her, that's awesome. And, you know, she's been through some stuff. I've read her books and she has a lot to say and a lot of wisdom to share. My take is not no one should share ever things that they're going through. And, you know, I don't think Brene Brown meant that when she was talking about boundaries. But for me personally, I tend to do better humaning in the world, sharing publicly from things that are not actively struggles. And that might change, you know, like Glennon has built a huge following and she's got a, an amazing community of people that she's been with for years and years and years. And so maybe in a few years, I'll change my tune. But for now, you know, how do I feel safest being out in the scary public amongst the other humans? It, this is just how I've found I can share without it becoming an overwhelming day to day, like, oh my God, kind of thing. It's certainly not the right way. It's just that's what works for me. Yeah. Like you said, I think that's just going to be different from each person, right? Like what works for each person. So yeah. Okay. I've heard you say this in various ways and I've seen it on your social media and I kind of want to get into it a little bit more but the phrase of you are not lazy you are not crazy you are not unmotivated I see this pop up quite often and I'm curious if you could talk through kind of the what you have found the sciences behind that and that's another one, the you're not lazy, you're not crazy, you're not, well, we talked about the crazy, the you're not lazy thing. People get really mad at me or they're like, are you saying it's okay to lay on the couch, like eating Cheetos all day? I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, I don't know how you distill that from what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that lazy is not the explanation for why someone is laying on the couch eating Cheetos doing nothing. Doesn't mean the behavior is okay. I'm not co-signing on inertia. I'm saying that there's a reason we get stuck. And there's a reason that we get frozen and that we don't do the things we're supposed to do and why we do lots of things that we're not supposed to do and why we drink the things and eat the things and take the things that we're not supposed to. It's not laziness. Like lazy is not a reality of your brain. Like our brains are organized to conserve energy so we can stay alive. It's organized to seek out threats and opportunities in the environment. It is not organized for productivity and happiness and goals and high, these high level things that we say we want. Our brains are organized on a much different level. And so understanding that will help you 
move. It's not like, oh, you're not lazy. You're fine. It's like, no, you're not fine. Like you're supremely unfine, but it's not because you're lazy. There's no such thing as a lazy person. Our brains are very, very smart and very, very stupid, but they've been keeping us going for a long time. And so we can fight it. It's like, no, I'm just a lazy person. It's like, really? Are you lazy or is someone enabling you? So it's just more comfortable for you to stay here versus go there. Like the two guarantees with change are one, yay, change is awesome. And two, oh my God, change sucks. And it's awful and it's hard and it's boring and it's uncomfortable. So is it that you're lazy or is that you're being enabled? Is it that you're lazy or are you afraid? Is it that you're lazy or is your environment so stressful that there's no way to expect yourself to achieve the goal? So lazy is a moral judgment, not a reality of your brain. So like you can call yourself and other people lazy. It's a nice way to judge, but it doesn't solve the problem. And it's not an accurate description of the problem. Okay, rant over. That's my rant. I'm like, there's no such thing as a lazy person. It's not a thing. And the same thing with motivation. You know, everyone is like, and I do motivational speaking, so I get it. It's like, I want more motivation. I'm like, you don't need more motivation. You need to understand where all your, think of your motivation like a tank of gas. It's like, it's getting used. Like you have 20 gallons of energy available to you. If right now your brain is motivated to conserve that energy and survive a threat and get through the stress marriage and deal with the older parents who are sick and the kids who need medical care that you can't afford or whatever, all of your energy units are going that way when you want them to be going that way. So it's never that we're unmotivated. It's that our brains are motivated to either do what we want them to do or they're motivated by safety or energy conservation. And we need to be aware of that. Like you already have all the motivation you need. It's just who's directing it and how is it being used? And so it's the wrong, I'm really big on language, not to be like a academic snob because that's super not my thing. But it's like motivation is, finding motivation is not, the problem. Like you're never going to feel like doing the things that are good for you to do. Like, I mean, sometimes I like to go to the gym, but generally if it's 20 below, it's like, do I want to get dressed and go out? Or do I want to sit on my couch eating bread? It's always going to be, I want to sit on my couch eating bread. So you're never going to feel like it, but that's not because you're unmotivated. It's because your brain is using your motivation units for comfort. And so we have to teach our brains how to use our motivation units for other things. It's like there's always something more to it, you know? I'm curious, this question keeps coming up into my head, so I'm just going to ask it. Do you think this same concept goes for something like saying, hey, that person is mean? Like this person is showing mean behaviors. Do you think it's similar to, well, are they mean or, you know, are they dealing with X, Y, and Z? And so it's coming, it's, you know, what's resulting from that is mean behaviors. You know, is it, would you say that's somewhat similar or... Oh, that's, I like that question. And no, because if someone is being mean, that impacts another person. If I'm being quote lazy, and that's only impacting me, then that's fine. That's my problem. Like I'm all about like, you know, do what you want to do. And I'm all about you do your thing and whatever makes sense for you have at it. The line there is until it starts impacting other people. I see this online a ton, especially there's like this whole thing about defend, like there's this entire like group 
group of people who are defending narcissistic abuse by saying, well, that's because they had trauma. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Nobody is mean or abusive who doesn't have trauma. That's how trauma works. Not that everyone who's traumatized becomes abusive, but everyone who's abusive has some form of trauma. That doesn't excuse it. No one ever gets to say, sorry that I was mean. I have trauma. It's like trauma will explain any number of behaviors. Trauma will excuse zero behaviors. So while you're right, the parallels here are it's not laziness. It's your brain is freaked out. Well, it's not meanness. My brain is just freaked out. Yeah, but that one is actually impacting another person. And I believe our choices and our free will extend up to the point where now we're starting to impact other people. And that's not a popular opinion for everyone but that's mine. Oh, I actually love that. So I really appreciate your take on that. I want to get back to this concept of being stuck and and wanting to make some sort of change. There are people in my community who really want to make a change in their life, but who have expressed that they feel like they're in this vicious cycle where they gather motivation, they put an action plan together, they start putting in the work, you know, they're kind of doing all the right things, but then it just starts to kind of like fade over time. And they don't end up sticking with the plan long enough to get what they want to get done or, you know, make this thing that they were trying to implement a habit or whatever. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And if you think there's Do you think there's kind of something always bigger at play here if they feel like they're in that vicious cycle where, hey, I'm doing everything that I need to do, but it just, it never seems to like last long enough to make any sustained change? And that's a valid concern. And it's like, you know, you can only shame people into doing things. So, you know, it's like, do the things you're supposed to do. It's like, I am. I'm like, okay, great. So then the first thing is, how long have you been at it? If it's like you're wanting to make this giant shift in your life and it's been three weeks that you've done some good habits, like that is not a realistic assessment. So we want to look at your expectations for how much time have you put in. If I had known how long my process was going to take when I started, I would not have started. And again, my work is and my passion is let's shorten this process so at least people have better information than I had when I started. But the change process takes a minute. And when I see people get stuck in that situation that you're describing, not always, but often it's because there was never a plan for what to do when it starts getting boring. Because the change process starts with, yay, pink cloud of I'm making a great change and I don't care how hard it is or how cold it is or whatever. Woohoo. Very quickly, that's ick. This is hard. And then it's, oh my God, like what the hell have I gotten myself into? And then it's, ugh, this is boring. And then things start to change. So this first half of, oh my God, this is hard. Oh my God, this is really hard. And oh, this sucks. This is boring. We never make plans for what to do. You know, in the drug addiction recovery world, there are relapse prevention plans because we know at like, Week three, your brain's going to do this. It's going to get bored. And if your brain gets bored, it's going to default to what it knows, which is generally, if we're talking addiction, the addiction cycle. So don't just make your good plan for how you're going to do the thing. What's your plan for when you get an epic case of the forget it, I don't want to, it's hard. And that plan can be really useful. And then factoring in what's the reality of your environment and is the thing you're 
setting out to do realistic right now in the, you know, I'm not telling people that you shouldn't dream big because your environment sucks. It's like, okay, but let's break it down. What's a small achievable goal. That's why when people like make vision boards and they, you know, if you have no money and all of a sudden you put a stack of like gold bars on a vision board, that's going to feel like what's the point in trying. So put little things that you can achieve. And again, micro yeses aren't that fun to think about or look at, but micro yeses are where all of our momentum is and where all of our brain chemicals are that we're going to need to do those bigger things. I don't remember where we started, but yeah. No. Yeah. So if we're in this, if it's a cycle, you know, if it has become a vicious cycle, we should theoretically be able to reflect and look back and say, basically, what are the roadblocks that I keep running into? Like, what are actually these roadblocks? Let's dig into it. So let's figure out a solution so that when I run into that roadblock again, I can now get over it. And then you also talked about the environment or my current environment, because that can change, right? I I um, do some work in the fitness and nutrition space as well. And I have some clients who come to me and say, hey, well, 20 years ago, I was able to do this exact roadmap and it worked for me to lose 20 pounds. Well, it's like, what has changed in the last 20 years? Well, there's a whole list of things that have changed in the last 20 years. So that same environment isn't necessarily going to work anymore. So I think that part is really important as well. But talking about those roadblocks. I do think for some members of my community, imperfection is a really big roadblock that they run into a lot of the time. And I think that sometimes, and I want to hear your take on this, but I think that this can come from a deeper place of shame, like something that they've experienced or done in the past continues to traumatize them into believing they're not good enough or they don't deserve a different future. And I was wondering if you can just talk a bit more about how trauma can affect our ability to move forward and create change. Mm, So many big things embedded in what you just said. And the thing that I want to pull out and speak to is like the thing of I don't feel good enough. Like it's all well and good to chant affirmations. I am good enough and I'm strong enough. It's like, that's great. But I'm really big on let's flesh out what's the total, like what's the big picture. And it's like, who are you worried you're not going to be good enough for? I'm worried I'm not going to be good enough for my father. Okay, well, you probably won't because he's a dick. And so like, that's the reality of the situation is I'm not going to gaslight you into thinking that you're good. Like, if the thing is, I have to be good enough for that person by doing this perfectly, well, you're right. You're never going to be good enough. But that's not like, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. It's like, I'm never going to be good enough for my father or for my mother or for my sister or whatever your thing is. Okay, great. Now what? Now what are we going to do? Because now we have to shift and pivot from externalizing our sense of goodness and worthiness and lovability to when I am this good, that person will tell me I'm okay, to being willing to take the ownership of, no, I actually have the power to bestow goodness upon myself and I don't need to outsource that to a guru or to a parent or to an authority figure or to anyone. And it's freeing because like you said, it's a shame problem, this like perfectionism thing. But if you scratch the surface, underneath perfectionism is almost always a, I wish someone had loved me better. And that means that our work is not to make you better. It's to grieve that that person's never going to see you the way you want them to see you, no matter how good you are. So let's take the power out of their hands and take it back because it's a lot easier to bestow goodness upon myself by my own metrics and my own values than to hope that someone who will never have the capacity to love me the way I want to be loved will do it. Like that's doesn't 
work. And that's super unfun. Like it is supremely unfun work, but it does work. I was going to say, I think that's so valid, but my goodness, how hard is that to do? You know, like I, especially a parent, you know, thinking about that or, or really anyone who's that close to us, you know, saying, you know, I'm actually not going to care what you think, or I'm going to move past that feeling. I mean, very, very difficult. I don't, I think some people go their whole lives without being able to truly do that. Which is really sad. And again, it sounds like such a bummer when I say there's no hope that they're ever going to show up for you. Huzzah! But like, that's not bad news. I mean, it is bad news, but there's freedom in that. It's like, oh, wow, if this person, a lot of cyclical behavior comes from this idea of maybe this time, maybe this time. And, you know, people love to say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Like, no, it's not. The definition of trauma repetition is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results because... Yay, brain science. Our brains are organized to want to keep doing a thing until we get the outcome that we want. And so if you know that, that you're not insane for having the cycle, it's that we need to figure out where is the surrender point. And it's like, okay, I'm never going to be good enough for this person. But that means I no longer have to tie myself into knots trying. And there's freedom in that. And there's mobility to be found in that. And you expand your menu of options you know, after you grieve and cry and snot into buckets and it's awful and painful, but then you get to do what you want to do, which hooray, that makes the work worth doing. And on the slight chance that that person does end up showing up for you at some point, it becomes, I guess, just an added bonus, right? Yeah. Cool. I mean, right, exactly. It's like, I'll never sit here and be like, there's no hope for anyone. But it's like, the trends are looking unlikely that this is going to change. So let's go over here and make you happy and healthy and functional. And if they come on board, cool bonus. Okay, this is the last question I have for you. And then we're going to jump into the rapid fire round. But this is probably going to sound super basic, but I'm just curious. Do you have a set or like a list of things that you find either for yourself or the people that you work with that are keystones to self-care? Like do these things and you will at least somewhat be on the right track. And then on the opposite side, I'm curious if there are any red flags specifically with behaviors or thought processes that stand out to you, maybe even personally, that when you start to head down that direction, you're like, okay, we need to rein this in. (laughs) So the, you know, keystone thing for self-care is how old do you feel right now? Because we try to do these self-care things that we're all told to do. Take deep breaths, box breathe, take a bubble bath, you know, take a walk, hug a puppy, you know, like hug a tree, whatever. But we need to know that if I am feeling like a ragingly pissed off 16 year old, that's going to need a different self-care intervention than if I'm feeling like a terrified and abandoned one year old. And so like, you don't have to get super like heady about this either. It's like, generally, how old do I feel? Do I feel like a teenager? Do I feel like a little kid? Or do I feel like, you know, a college person or whatever? It's like we can generally tap it like whenever people go home for the holidays, everyone tends to regress into teenage dumb, which is why they're so volatile. So before you ask yourself, what do I need for self-care? The first question is, how old do you feel right now? And then, well, what does someone that age generally need? And again, this doesn't have to get crazy. It's like if a teenager generally needs snacks, friends and music. 
little kids generally need hugs and soft things and together time. And then when you're not triggered, that's the time to curate your menu of self-care options that are specific to you for, okay, here are five things I can do when I'm feeling super little. Here are five things I can do when I'm feeling super teenage rage. And here are five things I can do when I'm feeling like sort of my age and just sort of in needs of some extra assistance. And then you're not mismatching your self-care intervention to an age where it's no, like it's not appropriate for that. Not like it's bad or wrong. It just doesn't work. And being honest is a really good self-care strategy that's fairly universal. Like I might think that self-care should mean I read a nonfiction book, but like what I want to do is watch a Disney movie. And so getting honest with yourself about like, what's going on for me? What are my choices? What do I really want? Like not what do I think I should do or what I think I should need, but what's actually going on here and being really honest with yourself. That doesn't mean you should indulge every woman. I have parts of me that really like drugs and they will always default to you. Maybe we should get some drugs. It's like, not going to do that, but I hear you. And the need that you're speaking to is to feel like, not like this. Like we want to feel altered, like alter our state because this is a bummer. So I have better choices than cocaine and meth and whatever for how to do that. But how old am I? And then what's really going on are pretty universal. And red flags for me, I can always tell that like when my bedroom starts to look like a cyclone hit it, that's almost always a sign that I have let some things slide and I need to you know, rein it in because I'll keep the front of my house clean where people see. But like when my bedroom and my closet start to look like a 16 year old lives there that's almost always my very very earliest tell that it's time to look at some other things yeah that disorganization can be a pretty big uh, sign of like self-sabotage I believe so yeah that makes sense and I love the question how old am I right now because I think just even taking the second to ask that question is really making your mind like shift from whatever it is that you're currently really worried about or angry about or whatever and it's just that that act of that shift and taking that moment to reflect, I think is huge in and of itself. So that's awesome. Oh, yeah. And with the cycle you talked about, guarantee that if you look at your cycle of whatever your thing is, there's a point at which you're no longer the age that you think you are. Like if you're chronologically 26, promise you that six miles before you get off your cycle and do something that you don't want to do, there's a younger part that's popped online that's going, no, give me this. And we all do it. So getting curious about our patterns rather than shaming our like if shame worked, it would work. It would have worked and I wouldn't need a job. Like this job wouldn't exist. So rather than, I'm not saying co-sign on the behavior and I'm not saying shame the behavior. The third option is get curious about the pattern so that way you can figure out what's going on so you can change it. Yeah. All right. So my plan to end every episode with a guest is to do this rapid fire round. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I'm actually excited about it. So basically the goal is to answer each question in one word to like one sentence max as best as you can. All right. Are you ready? There's five questions. Okay. Ready. All right. Cool. Number one. Oh, and sorry. One quick thing is these aren't like, you know, black or white coffee or tea. These are actually, you got to, you know, think a little bit more. I think you're going to crush it. Okay. Number one is what is one intention you have for 2023? Ease. More ease. Love it. All right. Number two, what is one thing that gets you excited about life? Adventures. Ooh, I like it. Number three, what is something you believe that others may disagree with? Ooh, Mm, that I have a right to exist. Okay, number four, what's the best advice you have ever received? Don't believe your own BS. 
Oh, I like that a lot. Number five, what is the smallest change someone can make today to have a positive impact on the way they feel? What's a positive change someone can do today to have a positive impact on how they feel? Remind themselves that their brain is not set in stone. Brains change, all brains. Like you, I promise if you're listening, you do not have the one brain on the planet that's incapable of shifting and changing and growing and unlearning and relearning. This is longer than a sentence, but your brain can change. Yes, you. Yes, really. Change is possible. I really like that. And something that I really like to express in my messages I'm giving too. So thank you for that. All right. Last thing before we have Britt leave us today is I just wanted to shout out your book. So to any of my listeners, if you've enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more on these subjects and more from Brit, first of all, I don't blame you because she's awesome, but check out her book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. And you can find the book at most major retailers or on Amazon. So before I give my last goodbye, like I always do on this podcast, I just wanted to say one more time, Britt, thank you so much for being on today and being our first guest on the Making Changes Breaking Barriers podcast. I'm so honored. Thank you for having me as your first guest. Of course. All right. So changing your path will not be easy. It will be challenging. I'll say that over and over again, but it will be worth it. So do a self-check today. Are you on your path up your mountain? And if not, what path are you on? 